I'm looking down here at my notes with my binoculars, so. Um, but, but it is nice to be with you in Grace Community Church this morning. And uh, I'm, as Neil has really said, and I, I don't want to just say I'm saying these things because Neil said these things, but it is really great. Neil's, Neil's, you know, in terms of all the other ministers in the village, Neil is my closest friend of all of them. That's a very low bar, I have to say, when you consider all the other ministers in the village, if you know them. So, but Neil, Neil is the best of them. So, yeah, so, and, 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 and you guys at Grace really are our closest friends in, the, in, the, uh, in terms of churches are our, our closest friends after the Presbyterians. <laughs> Maybe the Elam. And after the Catholics. And, and Church of Ireland. But after that, these are our bestest friends. Maybe after the bike club. Um, <laughs> but these are our best friends. So, yeah. I do have to say, um, I do... Um, the one thing I'm, I'm very envious about Grace Community Church is this. I keep trying to pinch Amy. <laughs> Shall we? I've brought contracts along this, this, um, this morning to see if she'll come. I actually think Amy makes Neil Neville and David look better than they, re she, they really are. Yeah. So I just keep trying... I'll maybe get her one day. I've got a whole stack of people I'd swap her for. So, 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 uh, so uh, you know, earlier on this year, I read a book um, and it had a real profound effect on my life. It's, and the book was only, um, so a little short story. It's only 47 pages. Um, and it's, it's probably a lesser-known book by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Um, and this little book is called Leaf by Neagle. And Leaf by Neagle tells the, uh, tells the story of this, this painter called Neagle. And Neagle has to... Uh, two things were told about him. He, he's an artist, and he spends all his time, far too much time, on his life's work. And his life's work is painting this tree. He becomes so obsessed with painting the tree, he, he'll spend months and months painting away at the leaves of the tree. And sometimes he'll sketch other leaves and then he'll pin that onto his tree. And he's obsessed with this. This tree becomes his great life's work. Uh, um, and the second thing is, he also has to prepare himself for going on a really long journey. So those are the two things Nagel should be focusing on. His life, his great life's work and preparing to go on this real long journey. He doesn't know when it's going to be. He knows at some stage he's going to have to go on this long journey. And uh, But Nagel is constantly distracted by his neighbours. His neighbours keep knocking on his door uh, and they're, they're, they're nice neighbours, they're good people, but they always need his help for something. And Nagel oh, reluctantly always has to stop what he's doing uh, and go off to, visit, uh, to, help, to do what he can to help his neighbours out. And to the extent he can never get on with his great life's work. And he finds himself distracted for, and not unable to prepare for the great journey that he's meant to go on. 
And then one day there's a knock at the door. And he thinks of his neighbors again looking for help. And he opens the door. And the people have arrived to take Nagel on his great long journey. And he's not ready. He hasn't made any preparations that he should have made. And he hasn't finished his great life work. Because all the time he was getting himself too distracted by trying to run after other people and what other people wanted him, him to do. And, uh, and, and that story, like the story itself, it's only 47 pages. Um, and they say it's a, um, it's a sort of a, a bit of an autobiographical story that J.R.R. Tolkien told about himself because J.R.R. Tolkien was a, was a terrible procrastinator which I can really identify with because I'm a terrible procrastinator as, as well. Uh, and he, so he wrote this story about himself, but the story had such an impact on me, um, of probably of any other book I've read recently, that would be a small story, challenging me about how am I preparing to live my life? Am I, and what am I really focused on in my life? Am I preparing, you know, in a, whenever we do a funeral in our church, we have uh, some liturgy which I, I find helpful to use at a funeral. And one of the things I would often say in the funeral is that we should be, um, um, live as those who are prepared to die. Live as those prepared to die. Because the absolute reality is, Every single one of us is right now standing over a trapdoor. And someday that trapdoor is going to open. And none of us actually know when that's going to open. And when that trapdoor opens, we're kind of going to go right through it. Someday someone is going to knock on your door and tell you, even though you know it. You, we all know it. We don't really know it, that someday someone's going to knock on our door and tell us that now is our time to go on that journey. And are you ready? Are you ready for it? Have you lived your life as someone who is prepared to die? Have you, do you know what it is that God is really asking you to do with your life? What is your great life work that he wants you to focus on? And just this morning, I just uh, want to go through a wee passage in, at the very start of Colossians. And as we go through this passage in Colossians, I want to use this um, Colossians 1, just as a bit of reflection as we, um, to help us to consider, are we prepared? Are we prepared? Um, uh, to live as those who are prepared to die. So, Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And Paul writes, uh, we always, we're going to go through the, a lot more verses, but we're just going to go to three, um, verses 3 to 5 verse, first. Um, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ 
and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. So Paul begins his letter with the reasons why he is so thankful for these Christians in Colossae. And the reason that he is so thankful for this little church um, is, uh, is because they've actually become so celebrated all around the Christian world at that time because everyone knows that this church, this little church of people, they really love Jesus and they really love people. Paul isn't thanking them um, for the wonderful worship they produce. Paul's not thanking them for the resourceful conferences that they hold. And he's not thanking them for the creative outreaches that they can provide in Colossae. But Paul is prepared to drop down onto his knees and to give thanks to the Lord because these people have got big love in their hearts. This incredible and this famous love comes from somewhere. It has a source, and Paul tells us where this source is. The source of this love, Paul says, um, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. In other words, these Christians in Colossae actually recognize that someday they are going to go on a very long journey. They know, because of this hope stored up for them in heaven, that this is not home. This is not where we are staying. They believe there is something greater stored up for them in heaven. And that is what is calling them home. That which filled their days on earth with purpose and with meaning is a longing for what is still to come, okay? That which is filling their days on earth with purpose and with meaning is a longing and a desire within them for that which is still to come. In the wee book, Leaf by Nagel, whenever Nagel finally gets to the end of his really long journey, and it's a longer journey because he wasn't ready. Whenever he finally gets to his long journey, when he arrives at the destination, the first thing Nagel sees is a tree. And he looks at the tree and he realizes that this is his tree. This is the tree he had been painting his entire life. And there's this sense that, 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 that actually the desire that Nagel had to paint that tree, to be creative in the way that he was, was because the tree already existed. It existed, it was stored up for him in heaven. And it was calling him. And, and, and I kind of think to myself, in light of I, that, that idea, it's an idea that's actually greater than Tolkien's. It's um, more Plato came up with this idea. 
but it's probably even greater than Plato. It's, it's, I think it's, it's written in the very fiber of our being that there's something greater longing and calling for us that we're yet to see. And that's why I think, is it possible? Is it possible that all our faltering and all our failing love is because we have already been loved. Loved and longed for by heaven itself. All of our longings and all of our desires to be accepted are all stirrings within us from heaven itself. And doesn't the Bible teach that? I think of John's letter to the um, first letter um, at the end of your New Testaments, especially in chapter 4, John comes up with a few statements. And John says, Dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because he says, for love comes from God. Not coming from us. It's coming from God. It's coming from our hope stored up in heaven. Then he says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Isn't that what, isn't that what really counts? Not how much I love God. None of I had my quiet time today. None of I prayed today. But have I realized today that he's loving me? Then he goes on to say, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. And we love because he first loved us. That all comes from John, 1 John chapter 4. And these longings and these stirrings are within us because they are from our home in heaven that's calling to us over the span of our lives, that's calling to us over the span of eternity. C.S. Lewis, probably one of my favorite bits of writing is C.S. Lewis's essay, The, the Weight of Glory. Uh, it's a marvelous little bit. It's so complex and you can spend your lifetime reading through it and your heart constantly getting warmed at all these rich images that Lewis uses in that. And you'll know, that you'll maybe remember this one, but I think he says, talking about, because he's talking in that essay all about our longings and all of our desires and, and where they're coming from and what they're calling us to. And in that essay, Lewis says about our longings and our desires, Lewis says, they are only a scent of a flower we have not found. All of our longings and our desires are only the echo of a tune that we have not heard. And they, all our longings and our desires, they are all a news from a country that we have never yet visited. And I think C.S. Lewis is saying in these, with those words that these longings and these desires that are awakened in us, these stirrings within our soul for more, 
for something greater than this world is yet to offer may well be a scent of heaven's flower. The longings and desires may well be the echo of heaven's song in our soul. It may well be these longings and desires, the news and the word of this other splendid country that we are yet to visit. So we prepare ourselves, we prepare ourselves by allowing ourselves to know and believe and to trust that we are already the ones who are loved and have this love that's coming to us, calling to us from our hope that's already stored up in heaven. Secondly, we prepare ourselves by embracing a life of grace. Paul goes on to say in verses 6 and 8, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear, our dear fellow servant, who is a, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae that what is happening to them now is also not just happening in them, but it's actually happening all over the world. They are only a fragment of the greater story of what God is doing in the world and the greater story of what God is doing in the whole of our history. And it's the story of God changing people. Changing people by the good news about Jesus. The good news about who Jesus is and the good news about all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Paul writes, the gospel is bearing fruit and it is growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the days you heard it and you truly understood God's grace. So these lives in Colossae and these lives around the world, they're being changed by the power of a message that is all about God's grace. Grace is, grace is not I think grace is the message that the church really needs again more than ever. Grace is not the message about a church or about any church. Not the message about what a church is or what a church is doing. Grace is the message that is all about Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. Grace is the message that's all about what Jesus is doing in your life. And that is that not a message that we all really need to hear again and again. There's a great man who lives just across the road from our church here, um, um, Ken Cardwell. And um, Ken is one of the most kindest and the most generous men I know. And one time I was in the village talking to someone about Ken. And um, I hope someone comes up here, doesn't come up to me afterwards and tell me, wait till I tell you a story about that Ken Cardwell. Um, he's a real for me. Um, I doubt you will. You will. But um, 
someone was talking to me in the village one time, and this person doesn't share our faith, um, and doesn't go to church or nothing, and we were talking about Ken, and, uh, and, and we were just saying about Ken, and this person said to me, now Ken, there's a person who deserves to go to heaven. And I said, okay, that's an interesting wee phrase. Uh, why, so why, why, I said, why do you think Ken deserves to go to heaven? He says, well, because he's so generous, he's so kind, and he's so good. He says, that's not why Ken's going to heaven. They said, well, of course it is. That's why you go to heaven, because you're good and you're kind. I says, what will I tell you? Ken could be the worst person you and I know. And he could still be in heaven. And they said, well, how come? He'd still be in heaven because he trusts that Je who Jesus Christ is. And he trusts that Jesus Christ is good and kind. Not him. Ken could be the kindest person we know and he could still be in hell. Because he doesn't trust that Jesus is good and Jesus is kind and hasn't trust what Jesus has done for him. And the reality, the sad reality is this, is heaven will be full of some rascals. It really will be full of some rascals who somehow understood that in spite of everything that they've done, and in spite of everything they once were, Jesus' grace was greater. And hell will be filled with some of the kindest, and some of the most generous people we may have ever known. But they refuse to invest and trust in a, in a world where Jesus was king. Where did we learn this idea? Where did we learn this idea that, that you, that, that, where did the world learn this idea from? That it was about being good and it was about being kind. I can only think if they've heard that, they've heard it all from the church. They've heard it from Christians. Because they actually think sometimes in our default, that's how we think. I need to be good. I need to be kind. I need to try and show God um, I'm serious here. I'm, 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 I'm being better. I'm going to be better. I sometimes think if they've heard all of this, the good stuff, they must have heard also the, distor the distortion of the gospel as well from us. Thirdly, we prepare ourselves by fixing our eyes on a vision of God for our lives. We prepare ourselves by fixing our eyes on a vision of God for our lives. Verses 9-11. And for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives 
so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and praise him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience. So you guys are going to um, enter into a period where you are going to pray. And, and, and so here's a challenge. In light of Paul's words, do we ever pray for ourselves the way that Paul prays for the people in his church? Usually at times when we pray, and this would be true whenever we gather to pray in Rich Hill Methodist, sometimes the most I hear people praying are all about first world problems. Praying about things, and that's okay to pray about those things, but they, they get obsessed with those things. Things that I kind of think to myself, really? I'm sure God's got this. When Paul prayed for people in his church, Paul prayed deeply into the life, into their life and into their faith. He prayed for the people in his church to be fruitful in their relationships with him, with Paul, with God, and with each other. You know, to be in a, a fruitful relationship with God and with each other does not happen naturally. It happens very supernaturally. We need the power of God to make us flourish in our relationship with God, to make us flourish in our relationship with each other. And Paul is praying here not because he wants the size of the church to grow, Paul is praying for them because he wants the size of their hearts to grow. To grow in wisdom and uh, the understanding of what the Spirit will bring to our lives whenever we open our hearts and open our minds to the ways of the Spirit. So often we love to have a five-year plan of what we're going to be doing. I actually genuinely don't believe that God ever gives us a five-year plan for our life or whatever many years you want. God, unless you are as good at hearing from God as Isaiah and Jeremiah is, you know, you'll probably struggle uh, to hear God's five-year plan for your life. What God is interested in if you don't believe me, just look back a few years ago to the few months before COVID and all the plans God was telling us to do. And we're all hearing from God. And, and suddenly, we, 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 we weren't hearing from God at all. We don't need to fake it when we say we're hearing from God. God is not in the business of giving. Is that the heresy counter now, Neville? What level have I hit there? Um... Anyway, I'll tell you what the conversation God wants to have with you. Maybe not a five-year plan for your life. He doesn't want to tell you where you're going to be in five years' time. But he wants to tell you who you're going to be in five years' time. He's interested in making known to you what type of person do I want you to be in five years' time. And these verses remind us that God is wanting to give us knowledge 
to give us knowledge, to give us wisdom, not for where we're going to be walking to, but who we're going to be walking with, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, as some translations put it. How do we do that? Then we focus, focus on living a life worthy of the Lord is what's going to get you to where you need to be. You're not trying to work out where you need to be, but focus on trying to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. And somehow the Lord will get you to where you need to be. Somehow he'll get you doing what you need to do. Open your mind to the revelation of who God is. Open your mind to the revelation of what God is doing. The revelation that's revealed to us through the scriptures. And you will have a transforming vision for your life. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite writers, tells this story about this, uh, this little boy who lived in this town. And, he, um, and every day he, he, he got up in the morning and he went outside and above his town was this big mountain. And he would get up in the morning and he would look at this mountain. And as he looked at the mountain, he began to notice there was, like a, there was eyes on the mountain. He felt there was eyes on it. Some of the craves and the rocks created these eyes. And some more of the crevices on the mountain created like what looked like a nose. And then there was another part of the mountain, and it looked like a mouth. So every morning, the wee boy would get up, and he would go out and look on the mountain. And he began to be convinced that this was the face of a famous and an important person who was going to come to his town someday. So every mor- so he would get up in the morning, he would just stir all day at the mountain. Then he would run down and he would watch the faces coming off the ferry. He'd watch the, the faces coming out of the bus station, always looking for the face. And many, many years went by and this was his habit of his lifetime. Until he became an old man. And one day he went down and he was standing down watching the people coming off the boat. When suddenly he saw this face. And he says... He ran up to him and pointed at him and says, you are the face on the mountain. And this person looked back at him and looked up at the mountain. He says, it's not me. It's you. You're the face on the mountain. He'd spent his life gazing upon the face of the mountain that he had taken on its image over its lifetime. I think that's what happens to us in our relationship with God. We gaze on the vision of God and our lives are transformed not by what we're doing but by who we're gazing at as the beauty of the Lord is what changes us. And finally, I'll be very quick with this. The fourth and final part is we prepare ourselves by, um, no we don't, I'm going back to life of grace. My sausage fingers are messing about here with the iPad. Uh, We prepare ourselves by living a life of gratitude. So verses 12 to 14. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us 
into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So Paul here is calling the church to give joyful thanks to the Father. And it's because he wants him to give joyful thanks to the Father for everything that the Father has done for them. That he's taken these disqualified sinners and qualified them now to be participants in the kingdom of God. He's taken those who were children of darkness and welcomed them and loved them and adopted them into the kingdom of his light. They can be joyful not because of anything they have done. They can be joyful because of everything that God has done and everything that God is going to continue to keep doing in their lives. They can be joyful not because of who they are, but because of everything that Jesus is. They didn't get, these Christians didn't get emotional because of a worship experience that was fueled by atmospheric lighting and smoke machines and, and Jesus is my girlfriend type songs or whatever else it might be that might fire some people up in their worship. These people had emotional worship fueled experiences because of the gospel. Because, of the rea- because they knew and they understood the realities of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for them. And that's what fired them up. And I think the problem with the church today is we have forgotten to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've forgotten that we think the gospel is just for those outside the church. The gospel is as much for us because we feel we have failed and we have failed and we've forgotten it and we've messed it up and we need to hear it again. The gospel is what the church needs to preach to itself again and again. We need to remind ourselves that we were once in trouble, that we were once dead. We were unable to do anything to save ourselves. So Jesus has an incredible, paid such an incredible price for us to bring us into our kingdom. I, uh, my my father-in-law was never going to be here today until he got the runs. That's the worst excuse I've ever heard not to come to Grace Community Church. But he was, he, they were meant to be staying with us this weekend and they didn't come down. Uh, he's, he's got that gastric bug. And um, I'm quite glad he didn't. So I could tell this story, because we wouldn't have told this story if he was here. Um, my father-in-law, despite what I've just said, is the biggest inspiration of my life. He really is, I mean, he was, he was, not because he's my father-in-law, but long before he's my father-in-law, he was our youth leader. He was my mentor. He wouldn't have understood that term, mentor, and he'd probably hit me a slap if I called him a mentor. Um, but he was, he was a mentor not just to me, but to many hundreds as well. 
there's many people today that are serving the Lord overseas. They're serving the, uh, the Lord or church leaders today. Um, many people came into the kingdom because of him. And uh, like, he wasn't a pastor or nothing. He, he just led our youth group. He had, he, he had a full-time job. He worked as a part-time police reservist. He played football like mad. But he had this youth group, and we, he brought us together. He taught us to love Jesus. He taught us to read our Bibles. He taught us to be passionate about Jesus. And uh, we would come together, and he would take us everywhere. He, he, we, he would be sitting with us at about um, half 11 at night um, um, in McDonald's. Uh, he took us out to things at the weekend. Um, his wife, my mother-in-law, always felt like a widow growing up with him, and she did. And she were always thankful for the for the, the the way she released him. But he did everything for us, and and it's not just me. But there's probably many like me. We would do anything for him now. He, even as a father-in-law, he's just superb. There's, I mean, they're so generous, they're so kind to us that there is nothing that I wouldn't do for him. He, sometimes he goes on and on about his stories. And we were out for a, we had a picnic with him last Monday and we were walking around Castle Welland. And he was telling me stories about what the days he worked on uh, in, in business. And for about an hour, he was telling me about all these stories about business. And... You know what? I sat there and I thought, I'm not even going to try and change the subject here because a day will come when I'll just be pining to hear these stories and I won't be able to. I really love that guy. But the reason why I love him is because of everything. It's because how he loved us. That's why I love him like that, because how he loved us. My father-in-law loved us in a way that was failing and faltering. And that's how I feel about him. How much more should my life be overflowing with gratitude and love when I think of all that Jesus loved, in the way that Jesus loves me so perfectly? so purely and so sacrificially. What should fire me up in worship is that gospel. Not that I loved him, but that he loved me and gave himself for a sacrifice for my sins.